Hey everybody, this is uh, Dave Broadbeck, or as I'm also known, Dr. Dave Broadbeck. Uh, I'm also known as Batman. Okay, that one of those was a lie. Uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from a course called uh, Psychology 3106. Oh, that looks okay. That's fine. Uh, Territory navigation. I mean, here it says territory navigation part one territory. So really, they're sort of two parts of the same thing. Um, we have to define territoriality first of all. Oh, I should say by the way, I know you have a test next. Is it Monday or is it Wednesday? It's Monday, right? Yeah, uh, and it's the same same format as before. It'll be four of ten questions and an essay question that'll be worth. 20, so the thing will be out of 40. Just like you. Okay. So we have to define territoriality. The, my, my favorite example is by Nick Davies. He's a, um, a zoologist from Oxford. Um, when animals are more spaced out than you expect them to be by chance, more spaced out than you expect them to be by chance, then they're being territorial. Makes sense, right? Nice operational definition. I like that. So here's a couple of examples actually from uh, Nick Davies' 1978 paper. Here we have some frogs. Distribution of its nearest neighbor distribution. So it's how far you are from your nearest neighbor. And you can take a look here. You can, you can model that. That's pretty easy. And you get what's called a Poisson distribution. Doesn't matter. Who cares? It's called, it's called that. That's what you get. But it's, as you can see, it's shifted over. And the peak is way further over. So you would say these animals are territorial. Here we have a snail, yeah, or slug or something like that. And you can see there's a lot of them, so you can actually get a smooth curve. And again, much more spaced out. Okay. Yes, sir. Sorry, no, I was just wondering why is it a croissant distribution? Poisson. Oh, poisson. I thought it was croissant. That's funny you thought that, though. And now on, I think I'm going to call it. it's because it's discovered by a guy named Poisson. Oh, okay. It's kind of neither fish. Yeah. Because Poisson is fish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know you knew that. I wouldn't know if you knew that. I don't know how much French you people speak. Okay. Interestingly, the Poisson was not invented in France, it was invented in Vienna. To celebrate a victory over uh, the Ottoman Empire, the uh, Turks, the Muslims. So it was shaped like a crescent, which is the symbol of Islam. Did they too? <laughs> I'm not even touching it. Yes, I'm not touching it. But, uh, but no, that's, that's, that's good. All right. When should an animal be territorial? This is, this is an interesting question in and of itself. Well, let's go to optimality. That's the way to do it. Let's let's costs and benefits. Let's build a model. So, functionally, functionally rather, an animal should only defend a territory if the costs out are uh, less than the benefits. Also, greater than the benefits. Then I realized that's wrong. So, the costs are less than the benefits. That's when it should be territorial. So. Size of the territory and area, okay, the costs and the benefits. Costs tend to increase 
as a rule, linearly, where benefits level off. Why do benefits level off? At some point, you can't get any more than all the benefits possible to you. Let's say it's the amount of food that the animal gets. Right? Well, you can't eat more than all you can eat. Animals aren't like, uh, 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 like, we animals, they don't have bank accounts. They can't put things in the bank. They can't save things away for a rainy day. Okay? So that's why benefits eventually level off, and the costs now outweigh the benefits. So the size of the territory typically is going to be somewhere between these two, and we should get most territoriality at X, according to this, the way we draw, when we draw these curves, okay? So the resource has to be scarce, somewhat scarce, because if it's abundant, why would you care? Right? So if you have an abundant resource, and again, let's, let's say it's food, because typically it's going to be food or mates. That's the two things that you're going to be eating. Right? So if food is so abundant, why would you fight for it? Oh, water would be another possibility. Okay? So if it's so abundant, you're not going to fight. You're not going to be territorial. So it's got to be scarce, and it's got to be defensible. So there's your cost and benefits, right? So we need something that's scarce and defensible. Make sense? Right? Okay, good. So, here's some examples. That's, I don't know why that looks like that. That is the weirdest <laughs> bullet thing I've ever seen. Is it like 72 font? Yeah, I think so. See, I, I transferred all these from PowerPoint to Keynote so that I can use my iPad to run it, but maybe it just transferred from it. Okay, Golden Wing Sunbirds. This is uh, Gil and Wolf's work. This is kind of classic stuff. The resource is flowers. I just think there's a sound that goes with that, and it just sounds like... Okay, so take a look. This is number of flowers, and this is territory size. So what this says is that everybody has the same number of flowers, right? Because it's a straight line. I mean, it's roughly the same number. But then the size of your territory doesn't relate at all to the number of flowers, does it? Right? You can see that. It, it, it's, there's no correlation at all. It's a straight line, horizontal line. So the flower number per unit space is not, is, is not equal. It's the flower number that's equal, so I should change that. Not only should it be the flower, so yes, the flower number is equal per territory, but the density is different, right? You see that, yeah? Okay. So, 
Now back to this is good. Now it's back the, the, the bullet points normal again. So it's not number of flowers per se. It's floral density that determines a good territory for these animals. Because think about it. Now, gold-winged sunbirds are nectar-feeding birds, okay? So they, they um, not unlike, say, hummingbirds, except they're bigger. Oh, they are that thick, but a little bit. A good territory, you need, it looks like, what does it say on there? About a thousand flowers in the territory. A good one would have a small territory with a thousand flowers. It's easy to defend a small territory. Right? So it's floral density, as you can see here. When you just when you look at it in terms of floral density per meter squared, so it's flowers per meter squared, that is what they're defending. Okay? So it's density of flowers, not number of flowers. So everybody needs the same amount of food, basically. They need to get about some about a thousand odd flowers. Nectar of breeding birds, oh, sorry, uh, flowers tend to refill their nectar each day. They're just eating sugar water. That's what these animals subsist on. That's okay. Throwing a few chicken nuggets, that's what my son's diet is. <laughs> it's not entirely fair anymore. It's not far off. When he was younger, I used to, sometimes they'd come in and he'd say, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you cooking? Well, I'm just melting cheese. <laughs> like in a ramekin, you know, like a little thing to make like a souffle or something. And he just did eat it with a spoon. Okay, carry on. Look, it's what's interesting in that just eating a piece of cheese. Anyway, that. So, the smaller the territory, the more the flower. The smaller the territory, the better the, 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 the territory in this case, which is completely opposite to what, what you might think. Yeah. Right? You would typically think big territory means you're big and tough and strong. I am strong like bull. But what it actually means is I've got a shitty territory. I've got, I've got, we all need a thousand flowers. My territory sucks. Right? If you had a territory and you could get one out in, the, uh, in a field that could be the size of, say, this room and have a thousand flowers in it, that wouldn't be that hard. Really, eh? 100 by 100? Sure. That'd be a great territory because you could defend it. Would it be better to have a small territory with less flowers or a larger territory with more flowers? Whoa. Again, I think what you do there is you can model that and at some point the curves would cross. I think having a small territory. What are your two choices again? Like a small territory with less flowers yes. or a larger one with more. At some point. Like if it was equal, would it be better to have a larger one or a smaller one? Smaller one. All things being yeah. equal, smaller, because it's easier to defend. Even if having more area means more flowers. Oh, but you said it's equal. But it's equal, but. So you said equal density. Equal density. Yeah. Then smaller is not as good if you have equal density. Yeah. Because yeah. floral density is the limiting thing here, right? That's the thing. And the better territory is the smaller floral density. Sorry. The bigger floral density. Good questions, guys. So we have to look at thickness at some point. Again, flower density is probably a pretty good standing for thickness because it's access to food. The question you want to ask then is that does, does territory size or whatever affect the quality of, the, of your mating? Because usually it's males defending territories. It isn't always, but it usually is. Because as I said many times before, nature's really sexist. 
And I'm being sarcastic when I say that. Is this a pronghorn? Do you know what that is? It's like a, well, it's an ungulate animal that looks like that, except it's got another half to it. When I scanned that picture, I didn't scan the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's an ass end of a pronghorn. <laughs> ass end of a pronghorn. There's an expression. I, there's a sentence I never thought I'd ever say. This is um, the mean size uh, of, their, of the doe group. One male, many females, typically with these animals. And with these guys, the size of the territory, the bigger the territory, the better. Gold-winged sunbirds are monogamous. Pronghorns ain't. So a big territory means I can then support more females on my territory, and I have more mating opportunities. That's exactly what that graph says. <coughs> so that's 3,000 square meters. That's good size. He's now got enough to <coughs> say, well, we've got one with four and one with uh, five. Okay. A dixissel, which is a kind of a bird, but also sounds like it might be an English term for something naughty. Mm-hmm. I was a dixissel, is it? That's <laughs> something wrong with me. Like, I, it literally is. I, it's so easy with you guys. The brain and behavior group all just sit there going, because they don't know me yet, eh? Uh, is he kidding still, or is that serious? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's during mating season. Typically, it's not necessarily all the way through. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of male parental care in most ungulates. There's a lot of female parental care. Is there overlap with the territories at all? And then there's a fight for that? During mating season, yeah. there may be, yes. Okay. And then the males with their hard horns will fight. Right? Yep, good question. Same kind of thing here with the dick thistle. It's not quite as clear. It's not quite as pretty. Still a positive correlation. So it certainly seems like in these two animals that are both... Whoops. Went too far, sorry. In, in these two species, and we both have polygonous mating systems, so one male, many females. The territory size, bigger territory means you can have more mates. So it's directly fitness related. Okay. What about when a territory has no resources at all? And you're saying, what? What if it is completely symbolic? It's literally just a patch of land. It means nothing. Nobody gets anything out of it except mating opportunities. This is called lek breeding. A lot of ungulates do this. Uh, There's an insect that does it temporarily, so it's when they arrive at a time of day. But traditionally, we think of ungulates and some birds. Ungulates are hoofed animals, right? so things like moose. Moose do this. 
there's a traditional area where the males get together and stand around and jostle for position to be seen by females. Hello, ladies. It's kind of like a grade 8 dance. <laughs> you know, all the guys are standing at one end. Oh, I don't go ask her to dance. Their voices are changing. That's what I was doing there. <laughs> so you got a lot of ungulates that do this. Some birds. Basically, it's males hanging out. They're not displaying by fighting, typically. There may be some violence. But more than anything, what they're doing is displaying their being in the best place. And then the females come along and make the choice. So the mating display they're doing is not a dance. It's not like peacocks with the feathers. It's, look at me, I'm in the middle. Weird. So it's all based sort of on, on, on almost tradition in that area among, among the subpopulation. I think a lot of deer do this. Certain moose do it. Can I maybe decide to hail? Yeah? I don't think so, but I don't know. It's not all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I, I don't think so, but I, honestly, I've never heard that, but it could be true. Okay. You know, could be, but I don't think so. So you look at a hillside and a bunch of males show up and they jostle for position. There's a little bit it's a little physical, but it's not like a huge fight typically. Okay. And the one who's in the middle gets the matings. So, is it the central territory? Because people, you say this, it's, it's weird, right? Doesn't it just sound weird? Is it being there at the right time? Uh, there is a lek-breeding insect, a kind of water bug, I forget the name of it, that has lek-breeding, but it's a temporal lek, not a spatial lek. So what happens is, you have to show up at the right, it's the male who shows up exactly at the right time of day. Yeah. Crazy. There could be some displaying going, like, you can think of this as a display, as a mating dance, as a mating display. It's just that it's a behavioral display about being in the, the, the let's say, the central, te- central territory. These territories are small, they're the size of the animal. Now, does it have anything to do with territory selection later on? Does it correlate with, say, maybe, that if you have somehow can get to the middle and stay there, that says you'll have a good territory for later for when the females are bringing up the young. No oldie. Could be this, might be that, could be this. No one really knows necessarily. <coughs> so here we have Ugandan coves, okay, which are a kind of uh, like a antelope kind of thing, or a springbok that kind of animal. But this is an example of a lek breeding ungulate. And there are, in this group that we're lekking, there were 22 males. Okay? 
One male... I'm sorry, so there's six... Yeah, and know that. 64 males. N equals 64. The graph is If we had everybody, we'd go out to here. But what's the use of keep doing that? One male is getting 34 mates. The rest of them get less. And this was the guy who was in the middle. This again is from uh, Stuff on the Page. one's even worse. This is the white-bearded mannequin. This is the kind of bird. This is the one who's on the central territory. Look at how many mating he got. Mating he got. So it's 430. He got 70... looks like 74 of them. There's a first one. So like the first guy who's in the middle... Yeah. Is the second person then in the middle? They're closer in the middle, yeah. The yeah. further, further out you go, the more poor are they arguing for that middle position the whole time. Yeah, they're jostling, jostling for position basically. They don't tend to fight. Yeah. In situations, they don't tend to fight. Uh, they tend to sort of just, it's, it's physical, like basketball is physical, if that helps at all. Okay, so it's not, it's not like. Um, Wrestling or boxing or MMA—it's more like basketball. It's not even as physical as hockey, or maybe it's like hockey—you know, battling for the net, that kind of thing. There's maybe the odd elbow throwing, but nothing really nasty. Yeah, yeah, it's for position. Yeah. So in the middle, you got—you know—if you're a Montreal Canadiens fan, you got Brendan Gallagher standing there, smiling while Willie take, takes hits, and then gets all the mating off too. So. Makes you happy. No, you're probably gets enough mating off. Yeah. Is there ever time for like? Oh, I think that it almost certainly happens, right? So what you're going to have is a situation where, and remember, this is a short period of time because this is over a few days. This isn't all spring because they got to go and eat and things. So over a few days, this guy's had quite a, quite a week, we'll say. But after that, it's over, right? And eventually, some of the, oftentimes, some of these extreme guys, they just leave. It's like, they, they tend to be younger males or really old males. So they're like, uh, not juveniles, but they're just sexually mature or they're ancient. And they tend to, they tend to quit at some point. So like, this isn't worth it. Everyone's having sex with George Clooney. I'm going, I'm just leaving. Right? <laughs> you know, it'd be like if you showed up to a party and you went, oh, George Clooney's here. Well, I guess I'll leave. If the only reason you're at the party was, we used to joke in in, in um, undergrad that fraternity parties at Western were basically lek breeding. That's all it was. A bunch of males displaying. Never understood the whole fraternity thing, but that's a whole. Well, I can be at a club. I can buy my friends. It'll be great. It's so weird, man. Hey, you want to do it? Whatever. So, I mean, this is, this is the one that kills me. It's like 70-odd in like a few days. 
you know, more power to you. Way to go, buddy. It's just, it's strange. All right. So territoriality, we can we can say a few things here. Many animals are territorial. In fact, I would maybe guess that most large most larger animals. I'm talking about things that are bigger than a few. Most somewhat complex animals, I would say most of them are territorial. And it's it's almost always about defensible resources, except for lek breeding. Optimality models can really help you here because as long as you can get fitness measures, especially if you talk about lek breeding, obviously. The currency is pretty easy. So for optimality models, you always need a currency. You always need to know what it is they're going to be, what are they going to optimize, right? So the currency here usually is pretty easy to figure out. Maybe it's floral density, maybe it's number of mating opportunities, there's a lot of possibilities here. So that's territoriality. Like I said, I it'll be a quick one, which is good. Navigation. Navigation's worth fun. All right. So let's talk about navigation. I don't know why I did that. All right. Let's talk about territoriality. To get around to the territory, the animal must know where it's going. And it's getting more. So the animal has to know where it's going, right? <coughs> so for any animal that moves, which is almost all of them, they have to know where they're going. Or they'll get lost and they'll die and then they'll pass their genes on. There's a lot of ways to do this. There are complex cognitive mechanisms which are way more interesting. There's other, there's simple things too, like odor trails. Right? The, inter- the, the thing that I find kind of fascinating among the general public is the general public thinks that most animals navigate through odor trails. That all other animals except for us just piss everywhere and they smell their way around. Or, 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 or secrete some kind of goo, right? And then they can just follow the line of goo. Now, I'm not saying that some animals don't do that. But, it's more common. I think it's safe to say it's more common, in fact, it's that, that, that animals are not doing that. In the simplest form besides leaving a trail of goo is what's called path integration. This is the simplest kind of navigation that uses memory. So here we have 
Oops. A typical search and return pattern by long-legged desert ants. They live in Australia. Yes, I think we're talking about Australia. So they're going a pretty good distance from, from their, their nest to food. We're talking what? 50 meters? It's a good little trip when you're this big. Right? They're also going to do this at night, typically. You're in the desert. You're an ant. What happens if you're out too long? You cook. Right? You can't be out very long or you just literally dry out. So you have to be doing this at night. You just do a random search, start moving around until you find food. Then you go straight home. So it's a twisting outgoing path, but a direct path home. Okay? Now how are they doing this? Well, again, people tend to think they must be somehow sniffing home from 50 meters away, which is, no, they're not. And if they were leaving a path of goo, they would follow the same path home. What they're doing is they're keeping track of each turn they make, what angle it's on, and then they're keeping track of how long they've, they've, they've traveled before each turn. How could an animal keep track of how many... And it's not doing this consciously, by the way. It's not going, okay, one, two, three, four, five, five steps. But that's in fact what they're doing. They're probably counting steps they take, or their nervous system. It's counting steps they take. And then, how, do you, how would you calculate if you're an ant... How could you know how you turned? What angle you turned on? Just guess. What's some thoughts? Please, Joe. Uh, your legs on one side will take more steps than the other. That's, that's cool. That's a good possibility. I like that. For something much simpler, like just like your, what's your, in your point of view when you're taking that turn? To also work? Yep. What else? Those are both pretty good. But it's got to be the easiest thing possible because it should, like you said, it's done unconsciously, right? So it's yeah, taking a lot of time. Yeah, but I mean, Joey's system works pretty well too. I mean, it's just number of steps taken by one set of legs versus the other. You, you get the angle. Yeah. Do they? Do oh, they have the ability? Yeah, yeah. Oh, go go Do they have the ability to like, track the location Because like some people would be able to track, you know, oh, the sun is this way, so I'm headed east as opposed to. Yes, that's also true. Yeah, I would say that that's all that any sun like conjugal spatial animation. Yeah, it's in fact almost certainly a combination of what you guys are saying. Okay, so you could look at just sort of um, that's what I'm on. Did you say that? Sorry. Which these are ants, yeah. Oh, ants. Okay. What can they do? They can look at... There's a series of cues they can use. 
that all can point to the same thing. So we've got number of steps taken by one set of legs versus the other. We've got what, what's in front of us. When you think of that as being sort of local cues or the vista that the animal has. And then the position of the stars. They're doing all, and the moon. They're doing all of these things. So the animal stores the direction and distance that it's traveling. And it actually is doing pretty simple, its nervous system does very simple vector mathematics and gets a vector which is distance and direction home. Once they get, get the distance, once they get to the, the, to the actual, to, to where they're supposed to be in the direction, and it's not correct, because it's going to make, there's going to be mistakes. They start searching, uh, searching in concentric circles until they find their nest. Okay? The animal has to maintain a running calculation. So it actually has to, this mechanism, this path integration mechanism, has to keep track of distance and direction the whole trip it's taken. And every single error it makes is going to make, is going to be cumulative. Right? Because if I think I turned 45 degrees and I only turned 30 degrees, even if I get the next one right, so instead of turning 45, I've only turned 30, so more like that. Now let's say I correctly say I turned 90 degrees. Okay? But I'm still off by the 15 degrees from before, 45 to 30, right? So all error I make is cumulative. If I think I've taken 10 steps, and I've actually only taken 8, I'm off a step every single time. So all error will be cumulative, and that's going to be bad. Now, error should cancel eventually, you know, over time. I'm going to overestimate as much as I underestimate. It should work out that way. And on average, it should be fine. But there's the two major sources of error, which is counting distance and counting direction. So all error will be cumulative. Improve this. <coughs> well, the way you would improve upon this, let's think about does anybody here know anything about sailing? About navigation that sailors do? I never thought I would learn this in graduate school, but I did. Which is how sailors used to navigate. You know how they do it now? There's a GPS and you just navigate. I remember, in fact, on Canada Day about four years ago, do you know Pedro Antunes from biology? So we went on his boat to watch the fireworks, because that would be fun, except that it rained and it was black. Now, the fireworks were great. And then we have to navigate back to the marina over here at the, there, the park. And it's completely dark, like it's literally pitch black. Pedro got his phone out and his GPS app, and he was able to navigate us back. Right. Sailors today do that. In the olden days, sailors would know distance and direction, right? And they'd make a guess at where they were. And then, once the sun went down, they'd pull out a device called a sextant, which is like a scope, and you can see what the elevation of certain stars are. 
and that'll tell you what your latitude latitude one was like. So they take a fix, they, then they correct themselves. So what you have to do is take a fix. So what about taking a fix every so often to correct? So let's say you've made a mistake in your navigation. So every so often, stop and look up and find out where, 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 where the pattern of the stars are. So while doing this, integrating the animals could periodically then take effects of, say, the position of the sun or the stars. And in fact, we know this is true because you can clock shift animals. There's this wonderful paper where this was done with Tunisian uh, desert ants. And you take these ants in Tunisia, and we can't manipulate where the sun is. That can't be done. That would be neat. But that would involve then people lining up to worship you on Sunday. So instead, we could move to a different part of the world, though. They still think it's a different time, because they, they don't get... When you land in Egypt, this is how this experiment worked, you don't announce to the ants they should adjust their watches. They still think it's a different time. The sun's in a different place. Now they navigate as if... They're still in Tunisia, but it's uh, later, and it screws up their navigation exactly what you would expect. There it is. So we know that Tunisian desert ants can navigate using the sun, but you can also do it with the stars. The cool thing about see the sun, the position of the sun has never changed, right? Okay, a long time ago, before the Earth and all that, yeah, well, fine, but that doesn't count. But the position of the stars changes over time. The star field is different than it was, say, 10,000 years ago in the sky. Which means that these desert ants have to learn the position of the stars in their short lifetimes. And if you don't think that's freaking cool, they can memorize where the stars are. Because I can't do that. I'm not walking home going, oh, I'm lost. Well, yes, but the North Star is here. And I know I live three degrees that way. I'll be fine. I can't do that. But a freaking ant can. Then again, I can step on that and kill it. So it really kind of bounces out there. Yes, please. This may be like no, this is weird stuff, so yeah. fire away. Cloudy nights, cloudy exactly. day. Excellent question. Cloudy day for navigating by the, the, the sun is hard, but you can do it by patterns of polarized light. Okay. okay. Um, so, in fact, we know that bees do this. We know that a lot of insects do We know that birds do uh, We can't do it, but we don't have to. I mean, you know, um, primates typically don't have this kind of thing, but again, like I said, we don't have to. We have other smarts. At night, uh, a little harder. Uh, on a moonless night, it's probably impossible. You just can't get fix it. Yeah. But in the daytime, the patterns of polarized light on the clouds. Yeah. yeah. Which is neat. Right? <laughs> it's, it's very cool. Would there ever be a time where they would just like stick their head out and go, nope, not going up today? Oh, I'm sure that happens, but how often is the weather bad yeah, in the yeah. desert, right? I mean, but you it know. It does happen. It does happen. <laughs> That's why, I mean, a lot of, um, a lot of these sort of animals that. Uh, Ants and, 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 and bees and water—they make um, honey, right? So they have food. 
like I said, stellar positions changed over time. This is not something hardwired. This is something an animal has to learn. And this is something an animal that has a lifetime of weeks has to learn. That's what amazes me about this. So, uh, okay, if I know where the stars are supposed to be, and I have what's called an ephemeris table, which is this, and say what's happening, it's this table. So it says, if this star is this elevation on this angle, you are here on, on the planet. That's taking effect. If, if you know how to use a sextant, probably within a few hundred meters. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know how to use a sextant, I have no idea. But I mean, I know people, sailors, that's how people, up until the early 1980s, that's how all the navies of the world got places. Right? Because there was no GPS. With a sextant. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a sextant anymore. It was probably done with a computer that did it. But still, it's the same principle. Right? Uh, it's basically a sextant. So same concept. So exactly the same technology. Is. Yeah, you accept how technology is. Today we have a global positioning satellite system, which existed, started, which went up in the early 1980s and wasn't something the public could use up until the early 2000s. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's kind of scary, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the... I remember watching a... And this is, it's done through what's called dead reckoning. Sailors call it dead reckoning. Um, and I remember during the first Persian Gulf War, uh, and they were interviewing a tank crew. CNN was interviewing this tank crew. And the guy was explaining. Um, he was asked, like, how do you know where you are? You're out in the desert. And this, this guy was saying, we do it through dead reckoning, sir. We have a dead reckoning computer. So the computer knew the angle they were taking because it had a compass in it. And it knew how far they were going because it's got an odometer. And it could tell them where they were on... And, said, and then sort of every so often to take things from satellites. But I've told you too much. Now we all have GPSs. Right, so that's how, and that's how naval ships worked up until, like I said, very recently. Yeah. So does that just mean like checking to make sure you're on the right path? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's correcting. You think you're here. So if I know that I've gone, let's just pretend that to get across to Queen Street, how many steps do you think it's going to take? What? 500? Let's say 500 feet, please. That's probably not enough. The rest of the is 500. And to get to actually Queen and. What's the name of the street that the university that comes over? Is it called Shinwalk? Did they actually change the name of it? Oh, good. Oh, that's good. You're supposed to be down one down the corner of Shinwalk. There's also Shinwalk over here. It's all right here. And Queen. So my ankle's going to be what? That's mm -hmm. So I have to walk. 20 degrees, and I walk 500 paces. So, if I walk 500 paces, but I'm off, and I'm at 19 degrees, so I'm 19 degrees, I then look up at the stars and go, where am I? Oh, I'm here. Okay. I have to go, so I can you know, re reset my map, basically. That's what taking fixes, that's what when they, when, they, when they do this, it's finding out how much error I've made and then readjusting all my estimates. Is that at the end? No, you would do that periodically. Okay. Yeah. 
And this is something, like I said, we developed a way to do it using technology in the Aegean. When ocean sailing started in the, what, late 1300s? Yeah. That's probably right. Yeah, early 1400s. Before that, you know how you navigate it? You navigate by staying close to the, the coast. <laughs> Just keep staying along here. You're still there. I can still see the land. We're going to be okay. But bass fishermen start coming to Newfoundland in the probably the 1300s. And they're navigating using the stars. There's no other way to really do it. And it comes. So we invent, we invent this. Animals have this built in. But animals can never build it. Right, but magnetism affect these processes? can. Some animals, uh, we know that pigeons, for example, have uh, specialized cells called, uh, oh, I just forgot the name of them, uh, but they're specialized cells that, that, that respond to the, magnet, the magnetic field of the Earth. We know they have that, um, and that they project into the back of the brain, of bird and actually which means they're doing the vision. So what that tells us is that the pigeons and probably a lot of other birds, magnetic I think it's called, um, actually have a heads up display telling them what their latitude and longitude is. That's not something I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but I don't, you know, for example, sea turtles do that. They, they literally have a light. It's probably, uh, sensory-wise, like a heads up display. They're probably just seeing lions. Like there's no numbers. It's not like they're flying in. Yeah. But we don't we don't have that, right? But again, we can measure it, so it doesn't matter. We can make maps. We can just draw ships. I mean, there, there's certain skills we have that other animals don't have, and there's things they can do we can't do. This stuff is endlessly fascinating, right? And just trying to imagine how it must look to a pigeon when it's flying around. First of all, pigeons can see 360 degrees because they got eyes at the side of their heads. Think about that for a second. Right. Yeah. So they can see behind Yeah, because they, they're right inside their heads. So they've got 360 degree vision, and they've got these lines telling them where they are. And they're also sensitive to patterns of polarized light, which is telling them what they're out <laughs> Yeah, I know why, right? But you'd have to. If you're flying, you better know how high up you are in the air. Right? You kind of have to know shit like that. Especially if you're navigating long distances. How high can they go? I don't know the answer. Can't can't be more than a couple thousand feet. Uh, yeah, they start to stall. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then they get shot down, and it's horrible. And the Germans take them prisoner. It's awful. And then they're taken to all these heroes. I, I, it's getting all very remember <laughs> Which is actually a solemn thing that I would never make a joke about. Um, so, beacons and landmarks, what's the difference? A beacon is something that drives behavior towards it. Okay? And a landmark points towards a goal along with other cues. An example I used, I used it in a, in a paper is if you are navigating to the sea of the Hockey Hall of Fame Okay? If you're navigating the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is across the street from the CN Tower, 
Right? It's pretty easy to navigate to the Hockey Hall of Fame because you've got the CN Tower as a land, as a beacon. Right? You just walk towards the CN Tower. You know then, and then turn around, go north, and you'll be at the Hockey Hall of Fame. Right? But what if it's so cloudy out you can't use the beacon? It's going to be pretty damn cloudy in Toronto, you can't see the CN Tower, but it does happen. It's kind of fun. What would you do then? Well, there will be other buildings you can use as landmarks that all together point in a given direction towards, say, the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I'm quite happy that I got that into print. The, the, the Hockey Hall of Fame is actually in this thing. So, beacons and landmarks are used a lot by a lot of different animals. <coughs> You know what? I think I'm getting a cold because I really deserve to be more sick. Um, great strides understanding this stuff in the last eh, 20 years, 30 years. Okay. So let's talk a bit about this. Let's talk about bees' use of landmarks. Okay. This is a landmark, and this is the goal. What's the goal? It's honey, it, or sort of sugar water, concentrated sugar water. Okay? Bees like sugar because they can turn it into honey. Okay? We've got a landmark, it's a distance from the sugar water. So in training, it's like this. Then we're going to test them. We're going to make it half the size. Where do they search? They search twice as close. Okay? That's cool. If we make it two times the size, they search twice as far away. So what the bee is doing is it's matching the size of the retinal image that it, that it has with the size of the landmark that it has in memory. Right? What else could it be doing? Makes sense, right? Change the color has no effect. By the way, um, instead of making it some some solid a solid box, make it like wireframe. Okay, so like like coat hangers doesn't change at all. It's looking at edges. son just texted me and I did great. I don't know what he did, but apparently he did a great. Um, so that's pretty neat. So you said when you make it half the size, they search um, twice, twice as close. Yep. Yep. Okay. Make it twice the size, they search twice as far away. So they're matching the retinal size with the size of the landmark they had in memory. Okay. And as I said here, making it like wireframe, in other words, making it just like, say, coat hangers or straws or something, has no effect either. They're using the edges. That's all they're carrying. What about two landmarks? So if you've got two landmarks, one here, one here, and this is training, so there's actually sugar water here. What you do during testing is there's no, there's no sugar water. So then what you do is you videotape it, and you see where they're searching. And the way you do these experiments, typically, 
There's a couple ways, but one of them, a friend of mine who does this kind of work with bees, he just leaves, um, there's a hive outside his office, or sorry, outside his lab window, and he just opens the window and bees fly in. Left. And you get stung a lot. I got a friend, a uh, colleague, Fred Wire, who gets stung like every day, all the time. So then stop working with bees. Bees are fascinating. Okay. I mean, if anybody's going to become like super bee man of some sort, it would be Fred Dyer. Um, so what we could do is we could rotate these. And so we've got them against the wall. We put them against this wall. Oh, okay, that makes sense. They follow, them, follow like that. The cool experiment to do is to stretch it out. What they do here now is they search here, here, and here equally. If they were just using... So this says they're using distance from this landmark. This one here says they're using distance from this landmark. This one here says they know it should be equidistant and this distance. So they're not just using angle on its own. Right? That's pretty neat. They're sort of half using the angular information. They're not completely using it. So the three peaks that I've told, told you about are three key places of search. Here, here, here. Okay? This is work by Collett, Cartwright, and Chang, uh, and also their colleagues. But a lot of this, most of this B stuff, the original stuff was done by Tom Collett. Um, like Collett, Cartwright, and Smith, Collett, Cartwright, and Chang, people like that. So who, who's doing the B stuff again? Somebody's doing B stuff, right? For their talk? Oh, yeah. Just, Sorry. Okay. Don't, don't sir. Yeah. Um, yeah. Memory. Yeah. Did you get the notification that they did the recommendation? No. I did. You did? Yeah, it's done. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I was going to email you. No, it's, it, it, yeah, because it's due in two days, right? No, yeah, I did it over the weekend. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Because I didn't get an email notification either, but I went back and checked and it said it's been submitted. It's so, yeah, we're good. Sorry, we're just having a private conversation here. Uh, okay. Let's go from insects, which are cool. Let's move to pigeons, which we've already established have a heads-up display and can see all around their bodies. Okay. This is Ken Chang's work in 1989. Um, that's Ken. That's him in his lab in Australia looking at bees. Ken Chang is the second smartest person I've ever met. Uh, Daniel Stewart, old friend. Are you going to see me? No. No, that's not true. I'm not going to lie. Ken Chen, the thing about Ken is when you hear a talk from Ken, the first time you go, I have no idea who's talking about. The second time you go, oh my God, he's brilliant. But the first time you literally have no clue. Because he's so far ahead of everybody else in everything. It's kind of creepy. He just said he's brilliant. Uh, bees, no, he, uh, Ken was here, he'd say he studies um, animal cognition, I think. But uh, he studied bees, uh, pigeons, rats, Tunisian ants, um, chickadees, trying to think of all the stuff. Oh, people. 
how about the first guy? Which one? No, no, oh, the first guy, Daniel Stewart, but I think he was just a colleague of mine. Like, he was just super smart as well. Like, disturbing as smart. Ken Smart, Ken is, like, it's, it's pretty crazy. Ken did this when he was a postdoc. And the cool thing is, I was an undergraduate at the time in the same lab, so I, I remember him doing this, this, uh, this pigeon experiment. So what he had is he had a big open field, okay? A big, which is basically a room. And so with a box in it with sort of Bristol board side, okay? And it was probably about this by this, so yeah, a couple of meters by a couple of meters. Had sawdust in the ground, and then there was a goal, and that goal was buried seeds in the bird key. The bird quickly learned to, to walk into the room <coughs> and find what find, and learn, learn what the seed was. Okay? And there was this blue stripe, it would be on the wall, but I can't draw 3D, so it was actually on the wall. Okay? So if you moved, if Ken moved the landmark over, the bird searched along this axis. It's the right distance from the lip from here, but it isn't following the landmark only, is it? Right? Because it would be right there, but it was actually stretched out. So the animal searches along the same axis as the axis of the landmark shift. <coughs> But it does not completely follow the landmark. But it doesn't shift its search in the other direction. It doesn't go opposite. So it is using that landmark. Can you use the backwards uh, Yeah, I can, yeah. Sure. Whoops. That's the bees. And there we go. <coughs> right? Okay, go on more forward. Yeah. Okay, so the goal would be like where there's no goal anymore. This is a uh, this is a this is a test. We just now look and see where or we can just look and see looks and sees where the bird is pecking. Which should be towards the goal, right? To where it thinks the goal is. Yes. Where is that in respect to this picture? It would be here. Okay, and that's but they're not searching just along here. You're saying they search just along this axis. The axis of, of, of shifting, so along, we'll call this the left-right axis, but the right distance, but not completely. If it was completely guided by this, you would get a, you'd get a small area of search right here. Okay. That's not what you get. You get a wide, you get a broad area of search. Okay. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. If you shifted it down, so we took this Bristol board blue thing and moved it out. They shift that way, but not completely, but in the right direction. So they're trying to cover as much ground. I don't know if that's true because what they're doing is they're trying to find where the food is, and it would be inefficient. Like if they were only following this, why aren't they just going here? No, they're cutting that's, down. Yeah. yeah. So this time the shift, the, 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 the shift is going to go in the up-down axis direction. If they're being thorough, why don't they just search everywhere? That's what I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, I understand. You just said, like, she's going to do it. You were like, if they were actually looking for the goal, they would just be looking, like, right here. But if, if they were, no, if they were only following the landmark, they would be searching just right there. Because that's the distance from the landmark. 
But they're not just using this landmark. So something else is They must be using search. something else. Okay, gotcha. Camel. But they're using the landmark, but just not it's solely. Okay. Yeah. So Ken, Ken came up with what he called the vector sum model of pigeon landmark use, which is actually the title of the paper. They must be adding self to goal and goal to landmark vectors. The pigeon's doing this in its head. But they're not just using that landmark, they're using other landmarks to probably the corners of the boxes, of the box. Because they're, they're easy to see where they are, basically. In fact, it's the only model that predicts these <coughs> chips and how they work. It's, it's basically a weighted average of different landmarks to the goal. And one of the, the main landmarks you might think of is that blue stripe, but you've also got the uh, corners of the box, for example. Curse. What if you were to shift the landmark in both matters? Yeah, that the whole thing falls apart. That's an excellent question. And Ken tried that, and for some reason it didn't work. And he came up with a term of saying that you had to, the, the, that this model only holds when the principal acts when, when the shifts happen in the principal axis of the space. Um, he has since come up with something that's much more complicated that describes some of this stuff, but it's it still involves a low a weighted average of factors. But it's a very good question. You can't, you can't, like, I don't know, you can't guess the way that they're pitching. Well, you can guess. You just, you're using the vector sum model, you're wrong. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so is the model wrong? No, the, no, the, the model is, is incomplete. Eventually, he comes up with a thing, um, him and a couple other people here in 2008, uh, eventually developed a model that, that actually can do a pretty good job with but it's still the same kind of idea of adding a weighted average of vectors. And adding self. And self to goal vectors. Yeah, okay. yeah. Was this question asking if like you if you made changes and presented like two different um, landmarks? Was that, was no, that Curtis was asking what if you instead of just shifting down or just shifting left to right, what oh, if you shifted okay. down down forty five degrees. Okay. And the whole the, the pigeon just gets confused mm -hmm. what happens typically. Yeah. And then you look like you had a question. I was about to say, uh, if you change the model, like you change the whole, I mean, you, you influence, this is influencing the behavior of the pigeon, right? It's yes, so exactly. Like, That's right. Yeah. So if you have two landmarks, we're just completely confused. Two, two landmarks, uh, he's probably, I think Ken's done two. Um, two obvious ones, but there's obviously more than two landmarks in there, more than one landmark, and there's at least two, because the shift, when the, the, the search shift doesn't, doesn't um, pull all the searching over to right by the landmark, it pulls it along an axis, right? Of shifting. Yeah. So Ken, I was there today. I was working, I was running rats for my honors thesis, and I was taking a break, and I heard him yell, Eureka. Because Ken Chang is the kind of person who yells Eureka. And this is when he came up with it was in a Sunday afternoon, in like March of 1989, or 88 And he just yelled, Eureka! And I was the only other person on the floor. Because, you know, the postdoc and the undergrad were people that were working on sidewalk. I said, what's going on? I figured it out. I said, okay. Then he explained it to me, and I went, I have no idea what that means. So. And then eventually, because I heard him talk about it a couple times, oh, oh, that's clever. 
but it took a while. It was funny, last year, last year at a conference that I go to, um, and that my daughter goes to as well, he introduced my daughter, and he visited us in London when I was a postdoc. He visited us like when she was three months old, and he's, he starts out by saying, next up is Madeline Broadbeck, who if I remember correctly, is a toddler. <laughs> and then Maddie gets up going, thanks, Ken. It's pretty funny. So this stuff is really cool. And in fact, we can think of animals using landmarks to navigate all the time. We can think of them using, and spatial memory basically here is a hippocampal mediated task, which is something you should think about too, typically. Um, and to get around where they are in a territory, let's say, animals have to know where they're going. So they use this sort of spatial memory, this landmark use, and they can use all manner of landmarks. So they use many sources of information to navigate. That's what they do. The, the, the point is that many, the multiple sources of information point to the same place. When I was talking about navigating the CN Tower to the CN Tower, or sort of the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto, everything tells you that it's in the same place. Everything from the map you're looking at to just your sort of gut feeling with this path, which is path to where the CN Tower is, I mentioned, to going along Young Street to, to get the front. All of those things tell you the same thing. They all point to the same place. Multiple sources of information are pointing to the same place. Right? The way we figure out how an animal navigates is we put those different sources of information in conflict. That's typically what we end up doing. So we put these multiple sources of information in conflict. So if I've got, and you look at the chain, the chain experiments are a good example of this. The blue stripe landmark says that the, the, the food is going to be right in front of it. But the corners of the box say, no, 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 it's over here. So what the animal does is it averages those vectors, and then you get search along that angle. Right? So... That looks like economics to So if we've got the box, and we have the landmark on the wall, and the food's there. We have a vector like that, we have one like this, and one like this. Okay? They all point to the same place. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, the, the two corner, uh, when we consider the corners landmarks, the two corners don't move. Now, we're going to move this over here. Okay? Now we have this plus this plus this, and it's a weighted average. It's going to be somewhere along here in the research. So we put these cues in competition with each other. We put them in competition. One of the other things we can very easily do is put 
Let's say we have a, uh, we think that animals have a representation of the world that is <coughs> involves, let's say, well, they're remembering everything, but some things are more important than others. So if you're a food storing bird, you're going to pay more attention probably to global, what we might want to call global cues, right? So that's the or the, the, the relationship of all the cues out in the world to each other. Because that's not going to move. That line of trees is still going to be there. Well, maybe it won't be once they build that building over there. But that line of trees is still going to be there. And that line of trees is still going to be there. But the color of the that's not, it's going to change. That's going to change. So remembering color is fine, but I'm not going to put a lot of weight in color. So not unlike how the pigeon is adding these different vectors together, what we have, let's say, in a food storing bird is it's adding different kinds of information together and weighting certain things more heavily than others. It's going to weight what we want to call global space, more importantly than local space, like what, it is, what something is beside. And it's going to weight... And then next going to weight maybe something like color. <coughs> so we get these hierarchical representations. Yep? Did Ken ever try putting a landmarks on a non-linear plane? Yeah, you mean in the circle? Uh, just like randomly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, they're at, we know that they're using... Oh, how does this go? Because he did it in a circular arena once. So now there's no, there's no corners. Okay. Right? And he moves it along like this, along the wall. And by looking at... How does this go again? I'm going to see if I can remember this properly. Because he did this. And then he has a landmark here. And they learn. And then he moves it over here. Yeah, he did that. And they search. It's just the angle that's correct. What did they end up doing? They pay some attention to the landmark, but they still somehow are, are getting some kind of information because, in fact, they search along like this. Not along the radius, but just the angle. So all this, all... Yeah, that's right. So they're, they're getting the right distance. So they get the distance information but they're also getting just the angle information, and I believe it's like that, so you get a chord on a circle. It's been a long time since I've had that Is it turning, and then he uses it? It's very... It's level. It's level, and it's, you know, breaks in every thing and all that stuff. It's uniform, which is size. Would you say, well, it's not realistic in terms of, like, a real-world application? Yes? Well, not his experiment, but having everything... No, the world doesn't work. The world doesn't work that. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, exactly. Like, I make it. Yeah. Oh, light source. You want to have it directly above. One bulb directly above. Things like that. Yeah, and that you have to really pay attention to stuff like that. Yes. It's not unlike the Morris Water Maze. Yeah, it actually it isn't that. It, in fact, he may have even cited that the Morris Water Maze paper in that paper. It's a long time ago. He may have, I think he did that with chickadees. I don't think he did it with uh, It was a long time ago. I could email him right now and I bet he'd respond. Because it's Australia? No, it's probably what? 
don't know when Ken goes to bed. I have no idea. But, okay. Now, if the birds were to strictly follow the landmark, and yes. search only in front of the landmark, they would not be making those calculations that you draw on the That's right. The They'd be making one calculation. So because that they're looking on that, that plane in the manner they move, we know that they're doing something else, right? Yes, sir. Right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And of course, like I said, animals aren't just using even just landmark sources. They're going to be using color. They're going to be using just distances, but also direction, but also the relationship of the landmarks to each other, the way we look at a map. And to themselves. And to themselves, of course. So they must have some form of Oh, yeah, sure. Pigeons are weird. Pigeons have two phobias, okay? Um, they have a side phobia and a front phobia. Side, the side phobia, phobia is for flying, because it's long distance, and the front ones is for aiming your beak. Phobia is all in that Phobia? Phobia is the, where the, the concentration of... Um, Receptors so they can see more clearly. <coughs> yeah. So two separate concentrations of receptors. Yeah, whereas we just have the what? Well, all you people in each eye. Each eye. Oh, okay. And they're they're, they're 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 separate systems. Yeah, most of you people. They're <laughs> they're separate systems. They're separate systems too. Uh, the pigeon, the right eye, the right far phobia, and the right near phobia can send information to each other like they're stored separately, and then the left and right. So that's easier than going left. Far, right, near, right, near, left, far. Four there. separate systems in two eyes? Yes. So four separate systems in two eyes. So two separate visual systems, basically, within each eye. So their vision is quite... It's very different. It's one of the worst things you can do if you study animal cognition, which is fine, and it's what cool kids do, but if you study animal, con- if you study animal cognition, if you study animal cognition, the hardest thing about it is, is you've got to realize very quickly, stop trying to get inside an animal's head. Because you can't think non-verbally, it's very difficult, and you don't know what the world looks like to them. And when I say looks like, the sensory world that the animals in is different than yours. Black-capped chickadees see into the ultraviolet, for example. A lot of birds they see ultraviolet light. We can't. They see ultraviolet. Yeah, and that makes sense. You know why ultraviolet light scatters differently depending upon the altitude. Oh, so you can tell how high A lot of birds see But I mean, yeah, a lot of birds can see it in the ultraviolet. In fact, black activity females have a patch on their feathers that's a, that's a color we can't see. It's ultraviolet. And I don't know what that looks like. It's a color I can't imagine. Right? I wish there was a way to alter that and see it. How would you see it? That, that's, that's, no, that's the problem, right? It's a color. This is how it sounds. A little bit like discussions you have in your mind. But it's a color you can't see and can't imagine because it doesn't exist in our sensory world, man. <laughs> or like snakes. Snakes can see. A lot of snakes, not all snakes, but a lot of snakes can see infrared. They can see heat signatures of a ground. Oh, like the one from Quantum of the There you go. Oh, okay. Or like when you when you're playing Ghost Recon, you see that. Like, what? So they can see through walls. No, there's a lot of walls. They can see through walls using infrared. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There are animals that can detect electrical disturbances. What? Well, if you're deep in the ocean and it's very very dark. Maybe detecting the electrical and magnetic disturbances is a great way to be able to see. Can't 
Yeah, yeah electricity. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, like, I think There's something like that in the plot, which I'm not actually, I, I can't remember. They're weird. They're weird. They're poisonous. They've got, they got some poison going on. I think it's only the mental, or only the females, only one of the genders. Okay. I don't know which one it is, but I don't want to be around a duck billed egg laying mammal. It's just too weird. <laughs> it's just too weird. It's too weird. Go. Uh, I have a question for the circular one. Yeah. Because they still use the original position of the uh, landmark. Yes. If it's moved, how do they know where it is? I don't remember the details, so I did. I, I, I'm going to go look it up. Okay. Yeah. Or I'll just give you a document. We did run a picture together. It was a lot of fun. He's from Australia? No, he's from Canada. He, his job is in Australia. Academia is strange. Sometimes you have to move far away. He was trained here? Uh, uh, he was trained in went to the University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was undergrad here, he was U of T, and then he did a master's in U of T in like, educational psychology, but completely different. And then he went to the University of Pennsylvania, he worked with a guy named Randy Gallicell. Um, and got his PhD there. He had one publication, but everybody was like, oh God, this guy's smart. And he did a postdoc with Bill Roberts, and I was working in Nancy Innes' lab at Western doing as an undergrad, which was next door. And then when I was in grad school, the year after I started grad school, he applied for a job, another job at U of T. He was there for five years. And he was under this weird program where NSERC paid his salary for five years, and it was the early 90s, and there was no money, and U of T didn't keep him. And they were stupid, 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 stupid for not keeping him. And he went on to Macquarie University in Australia, which is a really prestigious university in Australia. He lives there now. He's married. He's got a kid. It's all great. But we all miss him. We all miss him in this side of the world. But we, he always comes to that conference, which is great. But he was trained as a psychologist. And he's just smarter than everybody. But how does he know
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.